What's better than one John? Here's Johnny. Hmm. Nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kenzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. I want to start today's episode by thanking everyone who subscribes, everybody who has uh, reached out and pressed that button on their phone or uh, on their computer and actually made the commitment to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, John Wilner and myself uh, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, we love doing this podcast, but uh, it's been just amazing to get the feedback and to see the subscribers. So if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe. We've got a great episode for you today. I'm John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. Uh, I'm here with John Wilner, the Bay Area News Group superstar. You find him at pac12hotline.com. Wilner, we have we have games coming. We have, you know, next week is, you know, week, uh, week one of the season, so to speak, and It'll be uh, Utah and Florida next Thursday as we record this uh, going into the weekend. And, you know, give me an idea. How does that feel for you to have games coming but still have some uncertainty hanging overhead? A little bit weird. We, I mean, USC plays in 48 hours. They got San Jose State. Uh, so the first the first game of the final Pac-12 season is is two days away here as we record. You know, it feels to me, it still feels like it's kind of the middle of July and we're sorting through all this off the field stuff, which the same way we've been doing it for 14 months, uh, just because there's still uncertainty over the the fate of these final four schools. And uh, it would be nice if that uncertainty uh, were lifted by the time, you know, late next week rolls around when we're really into the season. I think, you know, it would it would benefit the athletes and the teams and the schools if if the focus were entirely on on the the field. But you can't do that if you don't know necessarily where your school's going to be playing next year. So hopefully ACC, Pac-4, Mountain West, everybody's going to get this stuff rectified here in the next week. I'm getting a lot of questions all of a sudden out of the Mountain West Conference from executives there, from athletic directors there who are age how much a Pac-12 rebuild, how big of a thing that is. Well, and I, I told them all that if they want to get a question in on this podcast, they need to tweet at us. You know, they can't they can't just reach out. But I I uh, I think it's really interesting to see that. I also have talked with people at Oregon State and Washington State, and I'm being told by them that yeah, that Stanford and Cal have more or less told them that they will get this resolved before the week one games kick off. So I think we are very close to resolution and then it will become, you know, and I wrote this uh, this week, you know, one of those sources told me that uh, I will fight to the bloody end, meaning to try to rebuild the conference. So I think there's there's some real initiative, whether it's four teams or two teams, to do something. Along those lines, we have asked our listeners for questions on social media. And so we have a we have like a, a pile of questions here that we're going to sort through on a variety of topics. We've tried to arrange them in some kind of sensical order. And Wilner, um, I'm going to start with a school-specific topic question that came out of the Pacific Northwest. The question is uh, relates to the University of Washington and their athletic director job. Jen Cohen leaves. She goes to see... How big of a loss is that for Washington, and who is Washington's next AD in your mind? Well, I think it's a huge loss because she's a, a top-tier AD at a school that is transitioning into a new conference. Now she's, you know, she's leaving with 
the foundation in place, right? She's got football right. She's got the right football coach, and she's got UW in the Big Ten. But, you know, they still – they need somebody who is, uh, you know, highly competent so that they can get through this this transition phase and be in position to thrive once they – get into the big 10. So I think it's a, a giant loss of, and it's a, a really good hire for USC, right? USC is getting a, an a level ad- administrator who understands football, which is, you know, the most important thing. I think you, the question who will they hire? Yeah, oh, go ahead. Uh, let me just address the USC part and then we'll go into the, who, who you hire thing. But I think we've, we've counted on USC to, to mishire over the years. And, and you look at Pat Hayden, Lynn Swan, you look at the football coaches that they've brought in from Lane Kiffin to Clay Helton, Steve Sarkeesian even. And I think USC in a lot of ways has tripped over itself when it goes to make a hire. And so this surprised me a little bit because I think they got this right. In, and I think Jen Cohen, for a number of reasons, is the right hire at USC. Whether you're a Washington fan who's mad at her, that's another topic. But I think it's the right hire at USC because I think you get a very sensical, experienced, humble, grounded person who is going to give that athletic department some direction and it and let's not let's say the quiet part out loud I mean Mike Bone was accused of you know perpetuating this hostile work environment where you know some uncomfortable things were said about women and to women and uh, the fact that USC's president has hired a female athletic director I think is a statement in that in that regard as well so I think it's a fantastic hire by USC I think it's a big loss from for Washington. Now, Wilner, where do they go? Where does Washington go from here? The, they will have an excellent candidate pool, partly because of the Big Ten, right? It's not a Pac-12 AD job. It's a Big Ten AD job. And that's there's a significant difference there within the industry. Now, will they, they're going to be taking, you know, 50% revenue share for a little while and not until the end of the Big Ten's contract are they getting 100 percent? i don't think but you know that is a secondary issue to the fact that you are now anybody who takes that job is a big 10 ad and has that platform that alignment and that stability for their department going forward so they should have an excellent candidate pool i i think you know there's there's a bunch of names we could throw out one that i'm watching is terry toomey at fresno state he hired kaylin DeBoer. To co- as Fresno State's head coach in 2020 when DeBoer was at Indiana as an offensive coordinator. I just have to think DeBoer is going to have a pretty significant voice in this hire. He's going to want somebody who he can work with, who understands football. You know, Toomey played football at UCLA. Uh, and I, I don't know the nature of their working relationship during DeBoer's two years at Fresno, but I would have to think that if it was – a good working relationship that Toomey's going to get a, a long, hard look from the Huskies. Yeah, I think, you know, you're, you're uh, there's some other obvious candidates out there, like Scott Barnes at Oregon State, the predicament he finds himself in. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Washington uh, kicks the tires on on Barnes as well. Um, I think, And he worked there. Yeah, he, he worked, worked there. there. They know him. Um, you know, he, you know, everything that you look at with Scott Barnes, I think just the fact that he hired Jonathan Smith saw something there in Jonathan Smith and has resurrected football at Oregon State. I mean, keep in mind, Gary Anderson ends up, you know, leaving midseason. It was a pretty dire situation for Barnes, and he uh, somehow rectified that and righted the ship. But I think I would expect that any search firm would, would look at him as well. But, again, it comes back to those search firms, doesn't it? I mean, the, 
they really do control the pool of candidates and and who gets looked at there. But I'm not going to pretend to speculate, you know, until we get further down the line. But I think it's a good job. I think it, it is well, Washington is well positioned. And I don't think that Husky fans should begrudge Jen Cohen for leaving for USC. I mean, it's just, it's one of the few places I think she would have gone. And I think, you know, she leaves that job better off than she found it. And they're well positioned. Yep. And, you know, she's from Southern California, you know, Chayton, new chapter in her life. I agree. Washington fans are some of them, at least, I think, are are already fretting over the potential for Lincoln Riley to go on to the NFL and then Cohen to hire Kalen DeBoer just because, you know, fans always need something to fret about. (laughs) Um, So let's here's another one. Pacific Northwest related. Washington State's telephone uh, telephone. Washington State's television numbers were top three in the conference. If TV is the main driver of realignment, why didn't that play a bigger role in the Cougars situation? Well, let's TV's part of the picture. And let's be clear, television market size counts more than ratings, the television ratings or viewership. So if we're just talking about, you know, you know, TV market size, it's why Rutgers in, in Maryland were interesting to the Big Ten conference. And it's why Corvallis and Pullman haven't been as interesting to the Big Ten and others And when we look at that. So even though the viewership's there, the interest is there. And even though I think Washington State and Oregon State would drive subscriptions like if the Apple deal had been part of it, like I think they would have been sneaky good with driving subscriptions because of the engaged fan bases. Um, I think, you know, we talk about drivers of conference realignment. It's TV market size it's brand. That's why Oregon is included and Oregon State is not. And, uh, you know, those things are bigger than the, you know, the viewership is the main driver of conference realignment. So you have to add value. And I can remember months and months and months and months ago, Bob Thompson, the retired Fox Sports Networks president, I asked him to kind of give me a valuation of all the Pac-12 teams. This is when 10 teams remained and you know, we were trying to figure out what is the what are the media rights value. And, you know, he had Oregon and Washington up there at like thirty five to thirty eight million per school per year. And he had Oregon State and Washington State around twenty eight million per school, twenty seven, twenty eight million per school. And I don't think he was that far off. And I think as a TV executive, that's how they were thinking then. That's how they're thinking now. Yeah. And I also think, you know, on Washington State situation, especially their their numbers are pretty good uh, for sure. And I am still and always have been still a little unclear as to whether, you know, an ESPN or Fox would count Seattle as uh, Washington State's market. I tend to think they might. But in the big 12's case, a lot of what was working against them was just geography. Right. If Washington State had everything the same but was located in you know Arizona or New Mexico maybe the Big 12 would 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 take a a long hard look but it just didn't make sense geographically right they got the four schools that are aligned with that with the border of the conference so i think that 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 really impacted the cougars and, and the beavers as well and keep in mind you know the big 10 got seattle with the washington acquisition if they didn't then maybe washington state is more attractive to them and so I think that plays a role in it. And, you know, it, that brings me back. This this wasn't a question that it was asked, but, you know, I've been asked a lot of times by fans at Oregon State and Washington State, what can these schools do in the short term, next two, three years? Because 
if there is going to be more chaos in like 2027, 2028, as the Big Ten's deal starts to come back around for renegotiation and the Big 12 and others, you know, what can these schools do to position themselves better? You know, the thing I come back to is you have to continue to fund football. You have to really focus on improving your brand because you can't control your TV market. It's not like they're going to add a bunch of TV households to those markets. So it's got to be brand driven and you have to continue to invest and you have to continue to be visible and matter on the national scale. So if they go to a, you know, a system that's got, hey, the top 50 or 60 teams are going to be part of major college football and everybody else isn't going to matter. You want to be included in that. And so I think investing and focusing on your brand is the way to do it. Yeah, let's uh, in fact, let's use that to jump into another question here. If Washington State and Oregon State join the Mountain West, does that conference rebrand? Do they change the name to the Pac-12, the Pacific Coast Conference, which was the Pac-12's name many, many eons ago? Uh, what do you think? How would they uh, handle the branding aspect of a some kind of reconstructed or merged conference? I am hearing more and more enthusiasm in the Mountain West, regardless if Stanford is part of the equation or not. More and more enthusiasm for the Pac-12 to be the entity and the Mountain West Conference. Some Mountain West Conference teams either merge into it or they create it as a division or hell, they take over the whole thing and merge with Washington State and Oregon State. From a brand standpoint, if Washington State and Oregon State go to the Mountain West, there's a hit immediately when it comes to recruiting, when it comes to the portal, when it comes to the perception of fans. There's a that's that's a relegation situation. If they stay and rebuild and you add the right schools, I do think uh, keeping that Pac-12 umbrella, in addition to the assets that might come with it, NCAA tournament revenue, the emergency fund. Uh, Wilner, I got to be honest with you. I spent about 45 minutes this morning reading the bylaws and the rules of the Pac-12 conference. And I came out of it, uh, I learned a few things in there, but I came out of it thinking, gosh, even though the brand has been treated like a pinata nationally, there are probably some assets that are worth keeping that are buried in there. And, I, and I'm hearing more enthusiasm from the Mountain West Conference, from different corners of the conference, that they would be interested in something like that. So I kind of think that the name, the Pac-12 or Pac-10 or Pac-8 or whatever it might be, I, I think it's got a puncher's chance to survive. Well, it does certainly have more value than Mountain West. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and the assets are si significant. The, as I, I actually have read the bylaws too a couple of times and actually asked someone who has a legal background to take a look at it. And you know, it's just vague enough and enough spots so that it's it's unclear. But my reading was that if if the Pac-12 were to dissolve the assets would be distributed among the current 12 teams. Even if Washington State and Oregon State are the last two to turn out the lights, if it gets dissolved, they all get some of the money. That was my read. Whereas if they stay and the conference remains a legal entity, the assets would remain with Oregon State, Washington State, and whoever joins were to join them. And, you know, I the NCAA tournament units is a lot of money. It's uh, it's hard to know exactly because we don't know what this season's tournament's going to bring. But I, I went through and ran ran the numbers on the units a week or two ago. And, you know, we're talking about 50, 60 million dollars that would be coming into the conference over the course of the six year payout cycle. 
if there is a legal entity remaining. So it's certainly a very intriguing possibility for for the Beavers and Cougars. There was an interesting passage, too, and I agree with your read on that, that if they if Oregon State and Washington State, again, fight to the bloody end, you, you know, use that quote, um, they stay there. The units would stay with the conference instead of going with the schools or being divided up. There was also an interesting clause in there about the emergency fund and how the emergency fund might be used to ensure the, the, the you know, the, the basically the survival of the conference. And I thought that was interesting. So it appeared to me that that emergency fund, um, as long as members stayed, could be utilized in an attempt to draw in other schools or pay out, pay buyouts or yep. be part of that negotiation. So, you know, to that to that listener's question, I think it's pretty evident that I think there's more benefit than not to explore a Pac-12 entity, even if it's a Pac-2 or Pac-4 building into whatever, uh, you know, but here, here's the one that wasn't asked, Wilner. Well, I mean, let me I, let me let yeah, me follow up real quick, because uh, this is one of the many things I have not gotten any clarity from uh, from the Pac-12 is the the size of the emergency reserves, because the uh, the tax forms list. What is it? About 43 million in assets. But I asked specifically how much of that is considered emergency reserve that would be. Uh, distributed with the approval of the presidents, and I did not get a straight answer on that. So I don't know if there's actually 43 million in emergency reserves, or 30, or 20. I know they drew down to deal with uh, pandemic-related shortfalls and all that, but uh, we don't know. At least I don't know specifically the the number that is actually emergency reserve funds. You know what I keep thinking about when you say stuff like that. Is I keep thinking about the rent they paid on the building in downtown San Francisco and $105 million that they paid over 11 years for that building that could have been distributed to members. Maybe everybody would have been a little happier. I don't know. Maybe the emergency fund would be bigger. I don't know. Revisionist uh, revisionist history, I guess. But um, Yeah, and another issue, too, is you know they signed a lease on that property, 40,000, 50,000 square feet in San Ramon in the East Bay. And you know, what's going to happen there? And are they on the hook for that? Right. They've got they got to have to tally up the liabilities as well. So there's a lot to be sorted out on that front. But but certainly uh, there there are some intriguing as, aspects to basically the Mountain West coming in and taking over the Pac-12 with with Washington State and Oregon State as the as the hosts. Here's a question. If the Pac-2 or 4 stay together next season. Do they get the guaranteed share of the college football playoff money? Every Power Five conference is guaranteed $80 million. They are one of the autonomous five currently. Wilner, there's a meeting August 30th. Um, this may come up. I'm told it probably won't be settled. But what do you think the long-term prognosis, short-term prognosis of that guarantee in year one of the playoff is? You know, I think it's in, in doubt. And, and fans shouldn't recognize Again, nothing nothing is easy. What the the playoff expansion that was announced last year is only for the twenty four and twenty five seasons. That is the at that point after the twenty five season, the current contract with ESPN expires. So starting with the twenty six season, there's a blank slate on the playoff. We have no idea, you know. I assume it'll be it'll be 12. We don't know 
you know, what TV networks are going to have it. We don't know what the revenue distribution, the format, the selection process, none of that stuff is settled for 26. What we do know is they have a template here for 24 and 25. And my guess is that they're going to take a long, hard look. I mean, the SEC doesn't want to, you know, then the big 10, they, they want to switch the six autumn. The way it is now would be six automatic births, six at large births. They want to move that to five automatic births and seven at large births. So they always are. I think they're always going to have to have one more automatic qualifier spot than there are power conferences so that there's access for the group of five to avoid a lawsuit. Uh, but certainly I think we should expect that it's going to go to, you know, five, seven from six, six in terms of the bids. I was told by one of the conference commissioners that they believed it would take more than one meeting that, that it might come up here on August 30th, but it wouldn't be resolved. There's also some blood on the hands of the big 10. I don't know if that gives them pause or I don't know in this world where, you know, people are shanking each other in the back. If, if any of that matters, does the ACC, if they take Stanford and Cal, do they go, hey, look, uh, in year one and two, we're just going to leave you as getting an automatic distribution. Yeah, probably don't have that that viewpoint. There, there, there's no uh, co the collegial stuff went out the window. Um, but uh, you know, you have the autonomous five. In order for the Pac-12 to be voted out of that, I'm told that three of the other four have to vote against it. So you know, they they need two votes to survive. They would need the Big Ten Conference or and the ACC or the SEC, they need some combination of those or the Big 12 to say, hey, look, we're okay with you getting that automatic distribution. I kind of wonder if the NCAA's rules that say you have to be an eight-team conference and we give you a two-year grace period, I kind of wonder if the Pac-12 would utilize that by saying, look, you know, we were, we were an autonomous five con conference before you rated us. Um, we have a two-year grace period with the uh, NCAA to get back to eight. Um, we should have a two-year grace period with the playoff. I don't know if that is an argument that they're going to make, but I am told that you know when four schools remained and you know they hire Oliver Luck to come into the room, that I'm told that one of the things that was talked about was that the autonomous five schools are named in that council. They're not it, – it doesn't just say, hey, the Power Five and, you know, it's the Big Ten, it's the SEC, it's the ACC, it's the Big 12, it's the Pac-12 – they actually named the schools that were part of the membership in that uh, in that you know council that was formed, the Autonomous Five. So if Stanford and Cal stayed in the Pac-12, I think you would have maybe some legal standing from a Pac-12 standpoint and saying, look, Stanford, Cal, Washington State, Oregon State were Power Five members yesterday. How can you say they're not Power Five members today? They're the same schools. So I, I just wonder if there is a legal challenge that the Pac-12 could issue there or the Pac-4 could issue there that would uh, help buy it some time before it got demoted and, and help it collect that, that, uh, that $80 million annual guarantee. So keep an eye on that. I think we all, it's safe to assume that the Big Ten will vote however Fox tells the Big Ten to vote. Uh, I feel pretty confident in saying that. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, you know, antitrust is going to be certainly something that everybody will have to consider because clearly, I mean, clearly the Big Ten is uh, capable of moving the market, right? I mean, it basically detonated the Pac-12. So we, we'll see. I would not expect if there's any chance for uh, those other leagues to be ruthless. They will be ruthless, uh, but uh, only to the extent that their lawyers tell them that they can, I think. 
let me ask you, here's the question. If you could rebuild the Pac-12 into a, a larger conference with group of five teams and the current four, who are you putting in there, Wilner? I am putting in there, well, this assumes then that SMU does not go to the ACC if Cal and Stanford are not. Uh, so I'm putting in SMU, Rice, Tulane, uh, that's three. Then I'm putting in San Diego State, Boise State, Fresno State. So that's six. That gets you to uh, 10 right there. And then you could, you know, you could make a case for a few others, Memphis, uh, Colorado State. But I think you go and you take New Orleans, you take Houston, uh, and you you take the Dallas and you get, you get uh, your flags planted in those places. And then you get the three best programs in the Mountain West and, and you move forward. That would be, you have a lot of, a, a lot of geography, uh, maybe pretty good football conference, but that would be my, where I'd start. How about you? I'm going to, I'm going to be as geographical as I possibly can, but, and I'm also going to keep in mind, like I talked to Pat Chun, the Washington state AD did a radio interview with him, Scott Barnes, the Oregon state AD on the show as well. And what I gathered both of those talks was that what they could offer is they could offer flexibility to schools and they could say, hey, look, a shorter grant of rights, lower exit fees, uh, you know, just try to take a real nimble approach. And Barnes even alluded to the fact that he'd be with an eight-team conference. He said eight works for me. I thought that was interesting that the number eight, that that might be the target just to get back to eight. So thinking along those lines, it makes it easier. I think you go San Diego State, that's a no-brainer. I think you go SMU. If Boss Hog and the uh, guys there want to reach into their pockets a little bit and and help uh, make the you know rebuild something, that might be fun. Um, and beyond that, I'm I'm going to take Rice to give SMU a travel partner and grab the Houston TV market. So now I got Dallas and Houston. That's all I want from the American. And and then I'm going to look at either UNLV to get into Vegas and stay in Vegas, or Colorado State and. And I, I agree with you on Boise State, Fresno State being on the table. I'm just concerned that Stanford is going to be allergic to that if Stanford's one of the remaining co teams in the conference. And I, and I wonder about Washington State and Oregon State looking over at Boise State and Fresno State and going, look, we compete with them anyway for recruits. Do we really want to level the playing field and, and let them in? That is a question because I, you know, I've covered those programs. We all know those programs, and the football brands of those programs are better than most in the West, Mountain West Conference but there may be a little bit of allergy to those schools. But So if you make me go to 10, I'll bring in Fresno State and Boise State. If you say I can only have eight, I'm going to leave them out, and I'm going to pick either UNLV or Colorado State, and, um, and I'm going to ride with that. What about the other option, too, is what do you do with Gonzaga? Do you try to rebuild your basketball brand and add them? You know, just, that's something yeah. that they should— they should think about for sure. I just don't the other know. Piece, yeah, don't know. The other piece that is, no, you're not on Gonzaga? I just don't know because— I mean, look, I've talked to people who say basketball is undervalued, that that's where the money's buried in the next round of realignment, expansion. But but these are consultants that are telling me that, and, and, and I'm pretty sure they're hired by Gonzaga to pitch that to me. So I, I'm trying to gather if, you know, if the average media rights deal is 15 to 20 cents of every dollar being in men's basketball, maybe Gonzaga's 20 cents, maybe it's 25 cents. I don't know. It's worth a little more. It brings you some units. Certainly would help the basketball profile. If you had San Diego State and you had, you know, Gonzaga in the conference, you're better. But I just, I'm not 
totally sold. I just need to see if there's if, is there money buried there. Yeah. Oh, that's for sure. Calculation. The other piece of this whole thing with the Pac-12 and the Mountain West is the Mountain West current TV deal with Fox and CBS expires after basically in the spring of 2026. So after the after the 25, 26 sports cycle. Right. So if the Pac-12 has reconstituted itself in some form you know, are Fox and or CBS going to be and and the Pac-12 does a super short grant of rights, uh, maybe some a short deal with an option after two or three years? You you do wonder if Fox and CBS would be interested uh, in basically switching from the Mountain West over to the the Pac-12 for their for their next rights cycle. That's that's an element to this that I think you know all the schools are considering, given that. This is all happening very close to when the Mountain West current deal expires, right? They're going to start negotiating the new Mountain West. If, if nothing changed, the Mountain West would start negotiating you know, its new TV deal uh, sometime early in 2025. We're not that far away from that point. So uh, we'll have to just see what what role that whole issue plays because the media rights piece is obviously going to be crucial. Why don't we move on here and pick uh, a wave, a little bit away from the Pac-4? Pac Here's one. Other than Michigan and Ohio State, are we sure the Big Ten is a better football conference than the Pac-12? Maybe the new schools, the Pacific Northwest and the L.A. schools, will do better in the Big Ten than they have in the Pac-12. What do you think about that concept? I think it's a fair question, especially when you look at the preseason poll. If that holds up, you've got five of the top 18 teams in the country that are playing in the Pac-12. You have great quarterbacks. I mean, it's part that's part of why I'm just shaking my head at all of this. As we see the Big Ten and potentially the ACC and certainly the Big 12 paying for Pac-12 schools to be part, like the TV the TV networks are paying for these these schools to come in. I'm looking at it going the money was there. Like the you know, the money was there and and I think the the question is on point because if you look at the top of the Big Ten conference and you go Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, you know, then that's a tier. And then below that, I think there's a significant drop off to the to the Purdue, you know, Illinois, Iowa, you know, potentially Maryland group. Like it's three teams and then everybody else. And I think if you took the Pac-12 and you played a crossover series with, you know, the 12 Pac-12 teams playing the best 12 Big 10 teams, I think the Pac-12 wins that series this year. This year for sure. Longer term, how, how will they succeed, those four? It'll be interesting. You know, the travel can't be dismissed. Playing those November games in bad weather can't be dismissed. And Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State, that is a – those are three big obstacles uh, for the for the schools out here. But it will be fascinating to watch. And that – it leads us into, though, uh, I think another uh, another question that, that – has a lot of relevance going forward here. What are the odds that the Big Ten's cash cows, meaning Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, are still in the conference in 2030 or are still willing to divide media revenue equally among the 18 members? And that, to me, is one of the great issues that will have to be solved in college football in the next you know, five, 10 years. Is there going to be consolidation within conferences? 
how much longer is Ohio State going to be willing to take the same amount of money from Fox as Rutgers or Purdue, right? Is Michigan going to be okay splitting that money up with Minnesota and Illinois? And I just, and same in the SEC, are Alabama and Georgia okay with Mississippi State and Arkansas getting equal cuts? I just wonder what's going to happen, you know, in the 2030s with the next media contract cycle and whether the heavyweights say enough's enough. We're not we're not going to do this uh, on an equal basis. I think they're on that path because in the SEC, I, I cannot see like if I'm at Vanderbilt right now or Arkansas, I'm looking around going, uh, we better dramatically improve our on-field performance. We are a threat to be squeezed out in the next round. If they are going to consolidate, that consolidation happened across conferences. Now it's going to happen within conferences. So I think Mississippi State and Bill and Kentucky, to some extent football, um, all need to be kind of minding what they're doing on the field. And I think the same goes for Rutgers and Indiana and Northwestern, even though Northwestern technically captures Chicago. Like, you know, you can't go 1-11 and 11 and piece that together for, uh, you know, four or five years and and, and then be expected to, uh, to get equal shares with Ohio State and Michigan. That's just not how the game's going to be played moving forward. We're already seeing that. That you know, the squabbling we're watching in the ACC is is not going to be unique to the ACC. When the next deals come up, I I fully expect that that consolidation will include you know Ohio State turning to Indiana and going, why are you getting the same as us again? And why are you in this call again? And and there there's going to be some justification and some conversation over that. Yeah, but then the question will be, well, then what? So Ohio State's not happy that Indiana's getting the same amount. Okay. What are you going to do about it, Ohio State? So that's that's the problem because I don't know that any of the conferences could boot schools out. One, you've got a ton of state politics at play, uh, and two, just the you know the legal framework of these conferences. You know, uh, voting somebody out will take certainly a majority, super majority. So to me, a more likely scenario would be the top schools just say, "All right." You know, we're done with the SEC. We're done with the Big Ten. Let's just form, you know, the upper division of college football, 30, 32 teams. You know, it's basically NFL light uh, and maybe you have relegation and promotion. But I think that's going to be the only way that they can really claim the top football schools can really claim an outsized portion of the revenue is if they they leave to form their own conference or division rather than trying to boot existing schools out of the conferences as they're currently constituted. I think you're right. I, you know, I talked to uh, the University of Michigan regent, Jordan Acker, who had that great Twitter thread where he was kind of calling out the NCAA and the hypocrisy and, hey, it's about money. It's about football. Um, you know, he's a lawyer and, you know, he's worked in that system. He's an elected regent in the in the state of Michigan. And so uh, he had a really interesting viewpoint on it where he talked about um, it needing to come from Washington, D.C., it being the ultimate order when, you know, when there's a couple of lawsuits that are out there, whoever, whatever gets to the Supreme Court first um, could be the Johnson case. Whatever gets to the Supreme Court first, the, you know, the Supreme Court is ultimately going to, you know, rule in a way that that declares college football players employees. And at that point. Um, I think they're going to get, 
you know, ordered to pay them. And I think that's when Ohio State and Michigan go, well, wait a minute, we need money to pay these athletes. And, uh, you know, football splits away from everything else and everything gets reconstituted. And that's when Indiana and Northwestern get left out and they get told, hey, you can go play basketball or you can play in the lower division. But the top 28 or the top 40 or the top 60 schools are all going to go off into uh, their own division that has their own media rights deal. That's that's on the horizon, and and, and I think most people are, are looking at that. But uh, the, that regent said that the order would come not from the NCAA or not from the universities, not from the commissioners, but would be uh, would be handed down by lawmakers. We'll see whether how exactly how much Congress wants to get involved in this. It's certainly a, a big player, and that's the reason the NCAA hired Charlie Baker as it's as president because he's got a lot of connections in D.C. Lot there are just so many issues, and we ha- we don't even have a question about one of the biggest issues of all, which is, you know, athletes uh, as employees or semi employees, you know, and the NLRB situation, and and all of the challenges to the NCAA's amateur model, and how that one how realignment is going to affect the legal direction that those cases take. I mean, you cannot. You cannot make a case that that this is all amateur sports after what we've seen happen to the Pac-12 and and what the Big Ten and and Big 12 have done. Right. I mean, schlepping your your athletes all across the country, there's they can't make a case that this is just amateurism. So I think this is going to expedite the move to the athletes being declared employees and being entitled to a share of the revenue that the athletic departments are getting and not just, you know, NIL deals, but actually revenue from the schools themselves and what what impact will that have on everything and i think it's just going to serve to exacerbate the move of the big football schools to getting their cutting their own deal as a 30 or 40 team league because they're going to need the money because they're going to have to pay the athletes half of it or or 40% of it and so in a way this realignment is just expediting the extinction of the NCAA model that is already under fire. Yeah, we had a great question that, you know, how will the the downfall of the Pac-12 in this, what we've seen in the last 14 or 18 months, how will that be looked upon years from now? And I do, I think it'll be seen as, you know, one of the big dominoes that fell early that pushed everything in this direction. And it's clearly headed there, and you know I think the Big Twelve and the ACC are are looking around, going, "Okay, are we next?" And what happens? I have a question here. Um, you know, when we talk about football separating, what's the right number of teams, Wilner, that that you think should be included in the in the top tier of college football if it broke away? Is it is it twenty eight? Is it forty? Is it sixty? Where would you draw the line theoretically? Well, right now there are sixty five. As of literally right now, there are 65 in in the quote unquote power five, right? That's going to change as of next summer. Of those 65, I mean, you could come up with a 24 team league that would be just fantastic, right? And a lot of good football playing schools would not be included in that league. I tend to think it would be a little bigger. It would be probably 32, something like that. And then you break it into, you know, Maybe you got four four divisions of eight or something. And 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 then it kind of looks 
the circle almost comes full in that it looks like what we have had, except consolidated in every region instead of five schools accounting for the different regions in each ha- or five conferences in each having 12. Maybe you got four divisions and each has eight, but we're basically back to where a, a general framework of what it has been. Right. And there's, we had a question about uh, with the PAC 12 dissolving, will that put an end to the notion that USC and UCLA are coming back? And I, I think that, we're going to get to the point where it looks again like it has looked now, but it's just going to be different conference affiliations and it's going to be based on, you know, more uh, grasping for the media dollars. But college football in 2035 or 2040 will look something like it does now with the regional based divisions within within the bigger super conferences. I think there's a risk right now that college football is probably blowing by in its pursuit of money. I'm talking and hearing from a lot of people who are so turned off by what they're seeing that they're saying, this is going to be the last season I watch. Now, I'm not, I don't believe that because I think people time, you know, they react emotionally. People are upset, particularly people at Oregon State and Washington State are upset over what's happening. But I do think there's a risk here that they alienate. Um, and lose some potential viewers. But the college football playoff itself has not been a regional friend of the Pacific time zone. It's just not mattered outside of Oregon uh, with Marcus Mariota in 2015 and Chris Peterson in Washington playing Alabama a couple of years after that. The, the conference just hasn't been a factor. And so I, I think that you know the there needs to be some regional balance to whatever group that they ultimately come up with, if it's 28 or 32 or whatnot, and I would love to see this. I don't think they'll do it because I don't think they have the vision for it. But I would love to see sort of a relegation promotion model where, hey, it's, yeah, it's the top 32. But then there's a group of 16 beyond that that play in another division for another championship. And uh, the top uh, the top four get to uh, be promoted into the upper division. And the, the, the lower four in the upper division get, get relegated every year. And it creates um, some churn and some some opportunity for those teams that in programs that may uh, may feel like they're fighting and playing off the radar to become a, a have instead of a have not. But I, I don't think they'd ever do that because I think there's too much money and too much greed, too much ambition. Nobody wants to be left out. And so I think they'll draw a line somewhere that effectively kills everything else as, hey, that's recreational college football, but the real college football is being played by 32 teams uh, that are playing in that upper division. This whole realignment thing, it's just, it doesn't make sense, right? I mean, I, I tweeted this the other day. If you're looking at it from the standpoint of a West Coast athlete at one of these Pac-12 schools, the only thing that's dumber than USC and UCLA being by themselves in the Big Ten is USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington in the Big Ten and Stanford and Cal in the ACC. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, any common sense, sense with an S, right? The big, We know that the sense with the C is what matters, but it's just like the whole thing has blown off its axis, partly because there's no leadership at the top of college football and the NCAA, uh, but it's just, it's almost like, I wonder if it's going to be like prohibition, right? We go through this period of 12 years where this this ridiculous arrangement and then everybody kind of comes to their senses and things kind of fall back into 
some kind of shape that makes much more sense for the athletes. And maybe that maybe that is simply moving football out of the umbrella of major college sports, right? And just let football be its own entity and everybody else competes either, uh, you know, in a regional way, maybe it's under the old conference banners, but just treat football completely differently. And that would, that would solve a lot of problems. And if football were not part, I mean, as great as title nine has been right. And is I mean, it's incredible landscape changing, but the fact that football is included in title nine in the in the financial calculations and the you know with equity and, and all that has has created the the stresses on the system that are leading to this as well. So if football was just viewed as as a separate entity, I think a lot of problems would be solved. I mean, and Chip Kelly was spitting truth. I mean, he 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 was so simple. Chip spits truth. Yeah, they, it, there's no doubt about that. It's so simple and so obvious that they'll never get it. You know, they won't get it until a lawmaker tells them, hey, this these are different. Those are employees and 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 they have to treat it differently. And so, yeah, I, I do look at the 5000 athletes in the Pac-12 that are going to be, uh, you know, going through connections to get into Ann Arbor and traveling all over the country. It's it's just it's asinine. It's just it's ridiculous. And I think oh, the Utah AD said it best. He said uh, he, he didn't think that the presidents and chancellors in the conference thought for a, a second about. The other sports, they were focused on football and the revenue. And, you know, they're in a lot of the presidents and chancellors, bless them, they're academics. But, you know, they don't know this space. They don't know that 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 part of the world. I don't think they thought about volleyball players and and basketball players. And I I think they were thinking only about football. Well, they are because because the thing they're thinking about the most is saving their jobs. And the first and the best way for with athletic related uh, situations the best way for them to get fired is by making a giant mistake with football. And so in order to preserve their jobs, they're doing what they're going with the football wave. The a- athletic directors won't speak out because they don't want to tick off the president. President won't speak out because they're worried. Like you said, they're fo- they're managing up and focused on football and they're worried about their trustees and their board. Uh, you know, it, it's all harmony, except that uh, it's off. The wheels are off. Um, question that came in. Um, after the L.A. schools left, some politicians in Washington and Oregon grandstanded about legislation to keep the schools together. What do those politicians have to say now that they did nothing? Would that stuff you should matter? T- you should take this. You, this is your right. wheelhouse. I've, I've talked to some of those politicians, and the legislation in the state of Washington was uh, introduced to keep Washington and Washington State together. Um, the lawmakers uh, brought it to, to the universities. They got some pushback. From both Washington State and Washington, uh, they both those schools felt that having to give testimony might pit the two presidents against each other. Might you know, in a non-collegial world, like in the most presidential thing ever, the presidents at Washington State and Washington did not want to have to give testimony that would put them at odds. And so, they told the lawmakers, you know, we're better off being able to handle this ourselves. I was told in hindsight by one of the lawmakers that was pushing that legislation that. It's uh, it's a uh, it's a regret that they're going to have that they didn't push forward in spite of the objections by Washington State's president and Washington's president. And in the state of Oregon, it never really got that far. But I, I have talked with lawmakers. I do know that the governor in the state of Oregon is taking the temperature right now, trying to figure out what she should say. 
She has called around and she's seeking counsel and input from various parts of uh, the state. Uh, you know, should she have a role here? Should she come out and say something? Because it's clear that, you know, the two public institutions in those states made decisions that dramatically impacted the other two. Like Oregon State and Washington State took a dramatic hit because of the actions of Oregon and Washington. There's no way around it. And part of the problem in the state of Oregon was that they decentralized the board of trustees. Remember in Arizona, as Arizona State and Arizona went to make that decision on that Thursday night, you know, they were told by the the, the regents in, the, in Arizona, hey, we, we prefer you to stay together. Well, the problem is several years ago in the state of Oregon, they divided the trustees, that Oregon has its own set of trustees, Oregon State has its own set of trustees, and they did that because they felt like they wanted to decentralize those decisions that the campuses could make on a daily basis. Uh, for example, Oregon was making decisions, and they had to, you know, the same trustees were ruling on Portland State matters and other state school matters. And so the Oregon needed its own board and argued that it should have its own board, and I'm sure this was not part of the thinking I don't think they were thinking that far ahead and thinking about athletics at all. But, you know, there, there's there been some talk about creating a centralized board in the state of Oregon and getting back to that. But, you know, to me, that's like too little too late at this point. We got one more question here. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, please don't take this as mean-spirited. It's not intended that way. I want to ask you, you were both so adamant the Pac-12 was fine for over a year. Clearly, that was not the case. How did all those reports end up going as wrong as they did? I mean, I can uh, I know you have thought deeply about this and talked to uh, talked on your show about it. I'll let you I'll just say real quick on my end. The hotline survival line was at five in the winter and four in the spring, which is basically 60 percent survival. So to me, it was never a done deal uh, until they signed. Uh, but you have thought about this. and I think it's a great topic for, for our listeners. So yeah. why don't you. Why don't you plunge uh, plunge ahead? Well, I do this with everything that I report, everything, all elements of the radio show or what I'm writing. And, you know, I'm always evaluating what could I have done better? What should I have done differently? And I'm kicking myself in some respects because I had multiple presidents, people in the room, all parroting the same thing. Everything's fine. We are uh, united. We are galvanized. We're going to get a deal. Everything's done. In the end, as I, as it starts to, even as it starts to move towards unraveling, that Thursday night, I continued to be told that Oregon was the key, that Oregon and Washington, if they stayed, everything was going to stay, and that the presidents and chancellors went to bed on Thursday night believing that they had Oregon and Washington on board. Now, part of what we have learned in an expansion is things can change on a dime. I mean, the news was changing in a way that was requiring both of us, Wilner, to walk around, go out to dinner with our families, whatever we were doing, go to a movie. I had my laptop with me in a movie theater like just in case something happened. But there, I think there was always the threat that something could unravel. But I think they were awfully close to putting it back together. And I think that, you know, the false narrative, if had they survived, would have been, see, everything was fine, because clearly it wasn't. And what I found out in the end was that, you know, the presidents and chancellors weren't seeing a deal until that week where the conference, you know, finally unveiled the Apple deal. I think they were being sold a bill of goods by the commissioner. I think George Klyovkov and and he might have a defense for this. I would love to hear what his defense is for this. I think he was all along pitching to his his board that, you know, Apple was coming to the table. It was a meaningful deal. This is going to be worth the wait, all of that stuff. And I think those presidents and chancellors, that's what they were turning and telling their ADs. 
That's what they were turning and telling me. That's what they were turning and telling people on their own campuses that, hey, we're moving in the right direction while they were all making contingency plans. So I look back at it and I'm kicking myself like, you know, should I have been more tuned in to the possibility that the, that the uh, you know, the, the gun was empty, so to speak, and that the Apple deal, uh, as it was presented, was going to underwhelm uh, the members. But then, you know, as, you, as we unpacked the Apple deal, I mean, certainly the, uh, the room for upside was there. I could see why some of the presidents would have had enthusiasm. And I still point to that Friday morning meeting where, you know, they go in to sign the grant of rights. You know, I'm told that a couple of the chancellors and presidents signed the grant of rights the night before that they were already in, and they were just waiting for Oregon and Washington to show up, which we now know did not happen 10 minutes before the meeting. But I'm kicking myself for maybe not digging deeper into the into the possibility that Fox or ESPN didn't want Apple in the space. Maybe that was part of what drove them to uh, in the 11th hour to have the Big Ten reopen its arms for Oregon and Washington. Maybe they just wanted Apple out of the business. I don't know. But I, I, got, I can tell you this, like, I, I believe that the presidents and chancellors were being honest when they said that they felt good about the deal all the way along. I also believe that they were making contingency plans in the 11th hour. And the big, the big 10 was always the threat. The combination of a suboptimal deal, Fox mustering the cash to afford Washington and Oregon, and the big 10 presidents approving the expansion that was always the three-pronged uh you, you know uh, shield of death for the Pac-12 it was the Big 12 was never the primary threat despite all the noise for all that time it was a suboptimal deal fox with the money big 10 presidents with the go ahead and that's that's what happened that combination realignment is is incredibly fluid incredibly complicated and the longer and i wrote this in January, and I can't tell you how many times I've repeated it everywhere, time and risk move together. The longer you take to get a deal done, the more you're vulnerable to outside forces swooping in and derailing your plans. An outside force like Fox finding the money and the Big Ten presidents uh, deciding they're ready to go ahead. And that's where uh, Kliakoff I think completely misread. And I, I, again, I wrote it in January. He completely misread the urgency factor. He needed to move quicker. And whether that was getting a deal done parallel track with the UCLA situation with the regents, getting a deal done coming out of the holidays, getting a deal done in March or April, the longer he waited, the more chance something was going to go wrong. When I had a president tell me that they had the, the $30 million deal on the table in October, and that they countered at fifty million, I slapped my forehead. And and I think another part of that misfire is that I think the commissioner, it's part of the commissioner's job to manage his bosses. I don't think he did a good job managing his bosses and their expectations in that moment. And he they needed that. And I I keep looking back and going, you know, even in the eleventh hour, you know, I had Rob Mullins, the athletic director at Oregon, come up at, at media day and tell me, hey. Uh, a lot of your reporting is going to end up right. Like, you know, and, and Oregon ends up leaving. Like, but I, I believe that those entities thought that the conference was staying together when they said it was staying together. And But I also think they ran for the hills the minute Oregon and Washington were out. And I think you're right about the four corners. 
because I was in contact with Four Corners administrators and executives, and they were saying all along, um, you know, this is where we want to be. This is where, it, but they didn't want to be there without Oregon and Washington, and that's what it comes down to. Well, no, they, they sh- and that that's totally understandable because without Oregon and Washington, what do you what do you have left, right? Which is why the Big Ten was always the primary threat, and uh, they couldn't. They had, I don't know exactly. I'd have to go back and count. They had eleven, say ten or eleven months, where neither Fox nor the Big Ten presidents were motivated to swoop in and they couldn't get a deal done in that giant window. And then by the time they do, the dynamics have changed and, and kaboom. I'm John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. He's John Will, Bay Area News Group. Catch him at pac12hotline.com. Uh, our next episode, we'll have football to talk about and the season All of that in front. Thanks, everybody, for submitting questions and for subscribing and listening. Thanks so much.